I may view a particular investment through a lens, right? And in left to my own devices, I would charge forward and do that, right? And he may say, hey, but what you're missing is this, this market rent call isn't what you think it is, right? I'm using that as, as, a, as a hypothetical, but, but the point is that we each come to this with our experiences, our knowledge and our perspective, but by no means is that the end all and be all. And, and in fact, it's, it's just one perspective, right? It's one point of information and you need multiple to be effective. And so I think we've learned to, to work together in a way to hopefully leverage and harness, you know, a better decision-making process. Hi, this is Matt Sleppin and welcome to Leading Voices in Real Estate. Today's episode, the last of 2023, is a conversation with Daniel Radek from First Washington, a national necessity retail owner-operator based in the D.C. area. We recorded this interview in Daniel's office in Bethesda, Maryland on November 21st. I'd not met Daniel previously, and we immediately hit it off and had so much fun talking through his business and his story. I'm pretty sure that you'll hear the warmth in the conversation, which will say a lot about who Daniel is as a leader. My first headline from the conversation is the peak to trough differential loss in the necessity retail sector, which was just 4%. That compares with the peak to trough in multifamily, which is approaching 20%, and I won't even mention office. So much had been written about the retail apocalypse, which was really about malls and the resilience in this unsexy, literally bread and butter subsector is awesome. We talked a lot about leadership, Daniel's career path, and for the second episode in a row, a co-head approach to the business, which Daniel leads alongside First Washington CEO, Alex Nyan. Co-leadership versus the more traditional hierarchical approach is uncommon and takes hard work to pull it off. But when it works, Again, it's great for culture and great for making a more resilient business model. You'll remember our recent podcast with Amanda Fajak from ZRG's Walking the Talk that dove into culture. I'll continue deeper dives with our guests on how they walk their talk on leadership. This will be our last episode for the year, and I wanted to thank our guests, our listeners, and also ZRG for all supporting the podcast. I probably spend the most time curating and sometimes jawboning what guests to have on the show, and importantly, the overall group of stories I want to have told and make sure that we cover for our listeners over the course of the year. The first two episodes in 2024 will be interesting ones. First, to look forward with Moody Analytics head Mark Zandi, and then a conversation with two San Francisco real estate business leaders, Mike Covarubias and Cyrus Sanandaji, about what the heck is really going on in my fine city. I hope that you're enjoying the show. Since folks might have some extra downtime during the holidays, please share this in your favorite episodes of Leading Voices with your friends and colleagues. To be precise, target friends who you know listen to podcasts, friends who don't listen but should, or folks you know with long drives, long hikes, or dog walks, or bike rides. Podcasts are best consumed on the move. If you have a few minutes here during the holidays, please rate the podcast on your podcast app. If you're not a subscriber, please do follow the show. You can also connect with me on LinkedIn and comment on the episode via my posts. If you have comments or questions on the show or want to learn more about how ZRG can help your organization in your human capital needs, feel free to email me at mslepin at zrgpartners.com. 
I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did with Daniel Radek and best wishes for the holidays. Daniel Radek, welcome to Leading Voices in Real Estate. And should I say thank you for welcoming Leading Voices in Real Estate to your Bethesda headquarters? This is the old artery building, if you remember that from the olden days. (laughs) And I haven't had a retail show in a year and a half except for Rick Caruso and Mm -hmm. what he does doesn't really count and he would tell you it doesn't count. (laughs) Um, But it's been a couple years since we talked about the retail space and you have a unique perspective on it. So I'm really excited to talk to you about your life and your business. Well, thank you so much for uh, coming in today, Matt. Uh, It's a pleasure to be on Leading Voices and uh, looking forward to the conversation. So let's start with what does First Washington do? What's your portfolio look like? We'll get into history later because I'm always, I love the history conversations about how we got where we got, but what, what's your business? Sure. We're an owner, operator, and investor in convenience and necessity retail. We have uh, about 150 uh, properties in 22 states in the District of Columbia. It spans 22 million square feet. You know, our focus is on high barrier to entry uh, areas in inner ring suburbs that have exceptional demographics. So high income, high uh, density, uh, high educational attainment and low retail per capita. Mm -hmm. And inner ring suburbs, does that get into infill in cities very much? It may be a minority of it. What's that look like? Yeah, we have very limited exposure within uh, cities. So, for example, uh, we're down in Spring Valley here uh, Mm -hmm. in D.C., close to American University. We have a couple uh, surface park lot um, uh, centers in San Francisco. But by and large, it's outside of the major metros and more in the inner ring suburbs. Uh-huh. And for people who aren't in real estate, I'm thinking it's all institutional real estate, but how small does a property go within your portfolio? Sure, sure. Uh, the The typical is about 150,000 square feet, but yeah. we do have uh, approximately 35,000 square feet as the smallest center. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And Talk about the real estate, the sectors of retail real estate and how what convenience necessity retail looks like. What's that mean? Sure. So so within retail, people are familiar with with malls, right? So Mm -hmm. you have very large, you know, million square feet assets that that have a a regional draw. Those tend to be discretionary focused, full price apparel, for example, uh, enclosed environments. Uh, you have uh, high street retail, which people are also familiar with. Again, that tends to be a bit more discretionary focused, you know, smaller footprint, individual stores in many instances. What we focus on is neighborhood community type assets that, you know, this is where you would go to get your groceries for, for your meal on a given night. They tend to be 135,000 to 150,000 square feet. You, they're typically anchored by a grocer. So the vast majority of ours, for example, are anchored by either a grocery or a drugstore. Uh, they'll have a bank, they'll have, you know, your hair salon, et cetera. So uh, it's about neighborhood um, convenience uh, as well as necessity offering. Uh-huh. And how we think about retail and we think about the quote unquote retail apocalypse and what we really are referring to are malls that shouldn't exist. We're not at all thinking about necessity retail. And how did each of them change over the years since the quote unquote retail apocalypse and COVID? Sure. So all retail was obviously challenged at the beginning of, of COVID. So, for example, all of our centers were open during COVID. 
but half of our tenants were forced to be closed and the other half were open. And over time, our tenants, you know, were allowed to be open. And, you know, what, what you'd find is it was very resilient throughout the pandemic as people needed services and and food and products that were in, in our offering. Uh, and so what you really saw was that resiliency of necessity-based retail, which has been a thesis of ours from the beginning. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, if you look over the 22 years of the portfolio that we've had with CalPERS, um, the peak to trough variance in portfolio occupancy is 4%. Mm. It's, it, it does not vary much at all. So there's a real resiliency to it. Whereas on more discretionary you know, types of retail, you saw some significant uh, drops in sales and had a very difficult time through the, uh, the reopening. And when you look at the overall retail environment, the U.S. obviously is the highest retail per capita of most, uh, most countries. Uh, but where you see a lot of that concentrated is in malls. Um, when you start to get to sort of the B and the C uh, quality malls, you know, second, third in, in a regional market, those are probably going to need to be repurposed over time as we see, you know, those start to fail. Right. And those are the headlines in popular culture, not the headlines in the real estate <laughs> business, because in the real estate business, we know these different product types pretty well. So it makes sense and is not a surprise. But the sexy stuff for years and the headlines still are the big stuff. Of course. And it, it's, it's easy to point to. It's big. People see it. They know it. But in the end, the resiliency of the everyday necessity right. you know, has, has proven its primacy. How did that work during COVID? Mm-hmm. Because the grocers, I assume, did just fine during COVID, in mm-hmm. fact, had a boost during COVID. But then the secondary stores that keep the business going needed support because they had less traffic. So what did you have to do? What was the drop there then? And sure. how did that change your behavior going to now? Yeah. So I'll break it into three buckets. So the first was the grocers as an example, but the drugstores as well. They were open, they were operating, their sales were higher than they had been pre-COVID. They were doing fine. And so they were expected to continue to pay their rent, no questions asked. You had some of the, the larger national retailers who have a balance sheet, but were forced to be closed for a couple of months. Mm-hmm. Think your TJXs or your Rosses of the world, where we deferred some rent to accommodate the fact that they were closed, but ultimately they were expected to pay that rent back, uh, and we gave them a bit of time to do it. And then the third bucket, which was the more challenged, was the mom and pop retailer, right, who didn't have a balance sheet, who might have been forced to be closed, uh, and therefore had a bit more of a struggle to, to get through. We had an all-hands-on-deck uh, effort where we had uh, intensive outreach to these tenants, tried to understand you know, what their challenges were, how we could help point them to government assistance where available. We leveraged our balance sheet to do, you know, deferrals that were ultimately paid back over time. Mm -hmm. Uh, And in the end, we had less than 1% of the rent during that period of time that had had to be abated. It was generally a deferral process where we collected over time, but we helped our tenants, you know, get through this period by leveraging our balance sheet. The other thing that we did is we helped them to adapt their businesses. So many of the mom and pops didn't really have sort of an online presence. They didn't have a big carryout presence. They Mm -hmm. had to develop that pretty quickly in order to survive during those early months in COVID. And so we were one of many resources, but to help them really drive that business. And what you've seen in, in the development of retail is more and more hybrid, where 
online and physical are merging. And, and really what COVID did is it accelerated that trend that had already been occurring, just mm-hmm. like it accelerated many other trends. Mm-hmm. And how did that affect, I'm just thinking the small boutique, mm-hmm. I'm thinking the burrito place Yeah, <laughs> all the time. And then how did you support them and the deterioration of not collected rents only 1%? Mm-hmm. So that's a lot less than I would have thought. But what was the active thing you had to do for them? And then also sure. after doing that, did that teach you new muscles that are part of your business today? I think you, you nailed it on the head. There are definitely some new muscles and definitely activating some that had been there from prior you know, mm-hmm. downturns that, oh, wow, look at that. We, we actually do remember that. So the first was just getting them assistance to, you know, to how point them to government assistance. There was lots of government assistance out there. Many of them didn't know. They didn't have access to, to law firms or to accounting firms that could help them. So we literally helped to point them in the right direction. Uh, we did outreach and, and, and put payment plans in place so that the tenants knew that they had time. Hey, we know that you're not allowed to be open right now. We're going to defer this. Let's get that set up, and then let's figure out how you know you can get government assistance. And then ultimately, when they were allowed to be open but then had severe restrictions on who could be inside or how many people could be inside, we started to take additional action. So made outdoor space available so that you could now have seating outdoors, right? Mm-hmm. So you could still continue to serve customers. And we made parking for a pickup, right? We, we designated specific spaces for pickup that allowed our, our tenants to, again, build a, a buy online and pickup at store business that heretofore they really didn't have. Mm-hmm. A great example is Best Buy, right? I think they're actually more profitable during COVID than uh, pre-COVID because they didn't really have to operate that huge store. It was just a warehouse where someone showed up, they handed it off and away they went. So I think for them, it was actually a more profitable period, but lots of stores learned how to adapt. And I think, again, that really accelerated this hybridization of retail where it wasn't just online, it wasn't just in store, but it's both. The burrito store? The bur- so they, <laughs> From Best Buy to burrito. Yeah, so for the burrito store, again, they don't have a balance sheet. They were afraid, how am I going to pay my rent? Am I going right. to be kicked out? So so helping them from a, from a balance sheet standpoint and a payment plan standpoint, then helping them with the, hey, here's how you do you know online business. Many of them didn't have a really functional website, if they had a website at all. So we had some uh, literature prepared and, and offered people how to do it, and then you know, really kind of helping to push them into an area that's not comfortable. It's like, hey guys, you need to you need to figure out how you're going to develop your business. Let us help you. Here's some some again some other resources right. that are out there, and some of them jumped all in because they saw that as their lifeline. Others were very reluctant because they just didn't know and weren't comfortable. But you know, sometimes you need a little bit of a, a helping hand and uh, to sort of push people into to, to what they needed to do. So. Right. And I'm spending a couple of weeks in D.C. And as I walk on the streetscape, which is not what you're describing, mm-hmm. but there's a lot of vacant storefronts. Yeah. Do you have that within your portfolio and what type of properties have that if you do? Yeah. 
We do not. Uh, again, what what you're seeing is is uh, unfortunately an outgrowth of COVID, where in, especially when you're in downtown areas, they are really suffering. DC um, probably amongst the worst because mm-hmm. it has amongst the highest office vacancy, and a lot of that street front retail really relied on the daily office commute right. and all those folks who would come in and they would go and they would get lunch at the restaurant, they do some shopping, you know, and then head home. That traffic is not there anymore. And so they've really suffered. So street front retail has been hit particularly hard in urban environments, which is what you're probably noticing within uh, our portfolio. And, and frankly, within, uh, you know, the sector writ large, occupancy is actually up. It's, it's near all time highs. And that really is a function of two things. One is a prolonged period of low development. So, you know, it used to be 2% of in place was being developed per year. Then it was 1%. Then it was a half a percent Then it was right. So you've had significantly, uh, significant mm-hmm. reductions in a new development of retail over an extended period of time, which is constraining supply. And then on the demand side, you've actually seen a lot of retailers who've expanded their footprints and wanted to open more stores. Mm-hmm. So the combination of those two things has really driven occupancy to a, to an all-time high. And talk about the um, less supply coming on. Is that less supply retail writ large or less supply in your sector of retail are you able to t- know the difference? You must. Yeah, yeah. It, it's it's both, right? I mean, there's always new development. It's just that development is significantly constrained. Oftentimes, the development that's purely new is, uh-huh. at, you know, very far out suburbs, right, where you're, you're seeing farms that are being translated into uh, housing and, and new retail. Uh, but where we're located, they're fully built out environments. So it's not like there's an acre of land that I can just go ahead and develop. Um, so if something is being developed, it's because something is being scraped. Uh-huh. So. And, and what about, you said more retailers want more space. Mm-hmm. What about those big blips that we read about and think about all the time when Bed Bath & Beyond goes down? Is that an opportunity or is that a cost or is it both? So being in retail, you have to have a certain stomach for turnover, right? right. There is a high level of turnover within retail because businesses in retail fail all the time. Mm-hmm. It's just part of the of the process. But if you have good dirt, right, if you have dirt where somebody wants to be, it's an opportunity when they go bankrupt. So for for Bed Bath & Beyond and frankly for others before it, it's a net pickup for, from our portfolio perspective because you'll have a new, more vibrant tenancy, probably a better merchandiser, higher credit, paying a higher rent, driving more foot traffic. Like that's a win-win-win. Obviously, you have to have the patience and the capital to replace that tenant, but net-net, it's a positive. And in this instance, there was a lot of demand from um, from a number of what I'll call junior box. You know, think right. again, your TJXs and your Rosses of the world, yeah. where uh, or your five belows, where they've been trying to expand. They have mandates to open uh, a lot of new stores. Those are prime spaces, mm-hmm. and so there were a number of retailers who were act- actively active in the auction process, right? right. So where uh, they went through bankruptcy and a number of those units were being auctioned off. In some cases, we were competing with retailers for those spaces. Uh, and it's it's limited because they don't have a lot of, of capital, mm-hmm. but um, they were definitely making a run for a number of those units. Mm-hmm. One of the things I found fascinating working as a recruiter in the retail space 
is that I believe a shopping mall, a shopping mall or a shopping center has a bunch of magic to it because you're creating place mm -hmm. and you're creating place by co-tenancy in the selection of tenants. Rick Caruso talked about yeah. this a lot on the podcast. Yep. But I'm thinking in necessity retail, there's less of that co-tenancy magic creation. I, but I don't know that. So how much of your business is, oh, gosh, I want them here and them there. So what's the strategy around that sure. to make the center more needed by its neighborhood? So it definitively is an important part. The merchandising of your center is a very, very important part. So if you were just trying to maximize rents, as an example, you'd have a lineup of banks going right down the row and no one would show up. It would lack any real energy, right? So it really is important to curate the type of merchandising that you have based on who is your customer? What kind of traffic are you trying to, to drive? What's the psychographic? What's the need given the overall trade area? So you're doing a lot of analysis to figure out who is optimal in that location. And of course, we're always trying to drive, you know, uh, NOI uh, as as a fiduciary, but you want to do it in a way that's sustainable. And ultimately, you know, you get that magic combination. And by the way, uh, obviously, Rick is, is a master at it. And, and, you know, he's got some pretty sexy tenants that he can kind of bring in. But up and down the retail spectrum, there is cross shopping. So the tenant, uh, you know, the, the shopper who goes to this store also goes to that store. And you want to make sure that you've got those so that you keep the consumer on site. You have what they're looking for from a more holistic standpoint. Do you have an example of some of those relationships? I'll, I'll give you a very interesting one. Uh -huh. So um, we have a center where we have a Trader Joe's who is a grocer. Yeah. We have a Costco, which is obviously a very large grocer, and we have an Aldi, right? Uh -huh. And each of those fills a different aspect of what the consumer is looking for from, from a, a grocery standpoint. So actually having them together allows the, the consumer to get their specialty item from Trader Joe's that they're looking for, right. as well as the big, you know, uh, the big turkey for Thanksgiving from, from Costco, right? So, you know, uh, there is some cross shopping that happens. Is that better like in a cold environment in the winter because i'm a little bit nervous if i go in california to one of the stores i put the stuff in the in the car <laughs> by the time i go into the other store and i'm out like everything is melted sure it's a it's a good point uh, and cooked Tr trader joe's does not have a, a high freezer content but you're 100 percent correct you obviously need to be careful about that. i like their freezer stuff do like, you? Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah, the the wontons, the fried wontons, and the gyoza. <laughs> sure. They're like they're like the best. <laughs> okay, change subject. What's the geographic dispersion of your portfolio? And then I want to talk about the history of your company because it was the investments that allowed you to grow in the ways that you've grown. C correct. So we are currently in 22 states in the District of Columbia. 36 MSAs. So we've got a pretty broad diversification, sort of heavier on the East and the West coasts, some select markets in the Midwest and, and throughout the Sunbelt. Mm -hmm. And what's the growth been? Sunbelt in many of the asset classes in our food groups, I guess I'm allowed to use word for groups sure. with you. Um, is, <laughs> no pun intended. Right. <laughs> pun intended here. But uh, Sunbelt has had better returns, like in the apartment business, mm -hmm. 
than the supply constrained markets. Does that have the same dynamic in your product type? Uh, you have to be careful because some uh, some Sunbelt markets have no barriers to entry, right. and therefore your ultimate returns on an investment that you make in the fringe of an urban environment are probably going to be muted mm-hmm. because there's continued development over time in the larger trade area, and therefore your NOI isn't going to grow because your rents aren't going to grow. Right. So we, we are very selective about where we go within the Sun Belt. But if you get into an, uh, uh, again, that inner ring, uh, mm-hmm. already densified area, that's where we will tend to invest. Um, so Woodlands um, in, in Houston, for example, is, uh, mm-hmm. is a great example where that's a, a built environment. It's stabilized, uh, great demographics. We're able to invest and get an outsized return there. Whereas, say, on you know, the fringes where it's being developed and new housing is going up, that's probably more of a, a trap investment from our perspective. Makes sense. So I want to talk about your company and understand how you got here. And I remember your company starting up in the REIT explosion of the early 90s, I think. You weren't here yet, but talk about that, the portfolio built, and then going private. Sure. So so Bill Wolf and Stuart Halpert are the founders of the firm, and they founded it in 1983, mm-hmm. and they were acquiring individual shopping centers, if you will, uh, in and around the, the DMV area here. You're correct. The, the, where most people will recognize it is when the, the portfolio went public mm-hmm. in the mid-90s. It was the mid-Atlantic REIT, so within the open air space, that it was very geographically oriented. So Kimco yeah. was the Northeast, Regency was the Southeast. We were the mid-Atlantic. And then once we went public, we continued to acquire properties and, and branched out more from the mid-Atlantic with additional capital into some of the Midwest assets that we had bought and uh, and further into the, into the South. CalPERS had built during this time a West Coast portfolio and was eager to get uh, some East Coast exposure. They wanted to make an investment or potentially make an investment into the public REIT. And so they asked for a tour of the properties. After the tour, they decided they didn't want an interest. They wanted to buy the portfolio. Mm-hmm. And so ultimately, they took that portfolio private in 2001. Mm-hmm. We continued to manage that, that East Coast portion, and ultimately you know, recommended to them that they should really merge these two and have a single manager. And we even offered not to be that manager. We just thought it would be better if it was a single portfolio. And in the end, they, they decided... They liked the recommendation, but they wanted us to continue to manage it. So we co-invested and continued to manage the entire portfolio until 2005. In 2005, pricing started to get heady. We were looking and saying, hey, we can't really acquire anything in a very accretive way. You know what? We should sell. So we made the recommendation to CalPERS in 2005 to sell the whole portfolio and basically work ourselves out of a job, right. but it was the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. And, and, and we, we take our fiduciary responsibility very, very seriously. So we made the recommendation, they uh, agreed, and we sold the portfolio in 2005 for $2.7 billion to a JV between Macquarie uh, out of Australia and Regency Centers uh, here in the Southeast. Fast forward in 2009, uh, having gone through the crisis and having debt that was starting to mature, I don't think they were in a position to refinance that debt. And ultimately, we were able to repurchase the portfolio uh, in 2009 for a little bit of a discount. 
I know so many stories of someone who sold a portfolio and then boom, they're the best buyer to buy it a couple mm-hmm. years later at a discount. What a wonderful, easy thing to be able to do. It sounds very easy, but when you're in 2009 in the midst of the GFC, when people are running for the hills, it does take a certain amount of courage to be willing to catch that knife and say, it's not falling anymore. Uh And it it took a lot of, the advantage was we knew the portfolio. We understood it in in the intrinsic value and the tenancy. And we knew where, you know, where you might have weakness, where you had opportunity. So in that regard, it was easy, but you really had to run your analysis and get comfortable that in several downside scenarios, because everything wasn't hunky-dory, it wasn't clear that things were going to stabilize and take off, right? Mm -hmm. And and then put that on top, I mean, it was really a a courageous decision by CalPERS, right? They're they're a public pension fund. And to, to make that decision at our recommendation, it obviously took a collective amount of comfort and, you know, analysis to get comfortable that this was the right decision. Well, I want to think about the we because the we is CalPERS making the ultimate decision there. And they're at that time having their own Mm -hmm. trouble in their own portfolio, having made some missteps. But then they, I'm thinking out loud here that they're saying, we're going to be in retail forever for part of our portfolio, no matter what asset allocation. We like this part of retail. We like these folks. We're making a long-term bet, not a quick bet. Yes, it's definitively a long-term investment, and they were facing a number of issues that took years to kind of work right. themselves out. I give all due credit to to my predecessors. They had you know, been very successful in the management and ultimate disposition of that portfolio. So CalPERS had a liquidity event that was very successful. Mm-hmm. The opportunity to buy it back at a significant discount, a billion-dollar discount. Because they knew the portfolio as well as you did. Correct. That helps. And... You know, as an operator, we had proven over years our ability to maintain uh, and grow a very stable portfolio that threw off consistent cash flow. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that, you know, this portfolio, as I said earlier, you know, the peak to trough occupancy is 4%. So it's a highly stable portfolio in good times and bad, which means that it has consistent cash flow. And if you're a public pension fund who's uh, spending more than you're taking in, that cash flow is very important, and it, it provides a certain level of stability for for that platform. And I think they saw and do value that. Uh huh. So talk about the relationship with Calpers, which continues. Mm-hmm. They don't own you, but you're their partner. And I know they have partners in different sectors. Mm-hmm. Call them food groups again. <laughs> that. And, and we've talked about before the conversation with GI about GID, mm-hmm. who's been on the podcast. We've talked to them, and we know they're the apartment or one of the apartment advisors mm-hmm. for them. How does CalPERS look at this? How do they look at you? How do you sure. look at them as your partner or maybe your sole partner? Yeah. So we've had a 22-year relationship, going on 23-year relationship with CalPERS, and it's been a wonderful per, uh, partnership. I think they would attest to that as well. We are largely their sole open-air retail investment vehicle. Uh, They do not own us. Uh, FWR is privately owned, but does manage Global Retail Investors, which is our partnership. Mm -hmm. We're a co-investor with them in that partnership, and it's a a permanently lived partnership. Uh Part of the reason is that these are long-lived assets that continue to be stable over long periods of time, again, having consistent cash flow. 
part of what drags down a return is when you have to, for no good reason, other than a fund has come to the end of the life, sell a good asset, right. incur a cost, recycle capital, incur a cost to get a new asset to then... so Replace the asset that you had to sell. Exactly. So by, by removing that, uh, you're able to re- remove a series of costs, just pure transaction costs. The other thing is CalPERS has, uh, unlike you and I, an infinite investment horizon. Mm-hmm. With that in mind, it really does allow you to do things differently where you're not trying to manage to a quarterly earnings expectation. Mm-hmm. You don't have to do something in the next two years because the fund runs out of time and therefore like that's that's it, the time's up. You can do the right thing over an extended period of time for an asset, which really does create value mm-hmm. and it unlocks opportunities that may not be there in, in other sort of capital structures. Mm-hmm. So that's been very beneficial for, for both them and for us. Long-term time horizon a REIT time horizon, but it's not public, it's private. Yeah, yeah. the REIT, while it does have an infinite horizon, it has quarterly earnings, which drives... Obviously Different certain, behaviors. Yes, yes. And you said they don't own you, but they do own you. <laughs> if they're your only capital partner, there's mm-hmm. a risk and reward to that. It does present a risk, but you know we've we've lived in this environment for again almost twenty three years now, and uh, it's been beneficial. When I think of the public markets and I think of large investors like CalPERS, is their history investing in closed funds? They're in history investing in REITs. They're mm-hmm. history investing in open end funds, which essentially yeah. is what you have. Yeah. I, so when they had a very large. Uh, close-end portfolio that they ended up selling a number of years back. They sold $3 billion on the secondary market of their close-end investments. Mm -hmm. So that's sort of more or less, you know, come full circle. Now they have continued investments um, in private equity, uh, but nowhere near the level that they used to. And then obviously they have a series of partnerships like ours that function as sort of an open-ended fund. Right. Uh, but they have a lot more control and, and input into that, uh, which has a lot of value, I would argue, for it, for them as an investor. If we think of the transactions market, mm-hmm. which is still largely locked up at this moment, yep. but in the transactions market, are you more able to compete? Does your cost of capital help you to do business in the places you want to do it, do you think? So CalPERS does have a lower cost of capital, certainly than a closed-end fund and potentially a REIT given where where pricing is. But in the end, I'd argue we're also very real when we do our underwriting. So what we care about is underwriting those cash flows and being real about what we think we're going to get. Mm-hmm. And I'd, I'd argue sometimes, depending on where we are in the market cycle, some market participants perhaps uh, are willing to um, believe that they could get Over-tired. a higher, <laughs> yeah, they could get a, a higher market rent than, than maybe they can. Right. And, and so while we do have a lower cost of capital, sometimes we give some of that back by by being more real about some of those underwriting assumptions. I will say that historically we've outperformed our underwriting assumptions, but that's obviously uh, beneficial to, uh, to a, a pension fund who, you know, right. preservation of capital is, is critical. The other advantage that we do have, though, is we have very good sponsorship. Um, we have a long track record of operating these properties. CalPERS is a very large known investor. And the combination of those two things, as well as a you know lower LTV sort of target, mm-hmm. you know, we think leverage is meant to enhance a return, not make a return. Mm-hmm. I think our, our awesome. lending partners are, are, are definitely in favor of that. And so, you know, the combination 
combination of those three things has always allowed us to access the debt markets in a way that perhaps other market participants can't. So we have a pretty favorable cost of debt, big picture. Uh Uh-huh. And are you transacting now at any volume? Yeah, I think largely you have a bid-ask spread in the marketplace where unless there is a participant that needs to sell for one reason or another, you're not finding price stability in the marketplace. In particular, as, as the tenure has been highly volatile, you know, sellers are, are reluctant to want to sell into what could be a changing environment. And again, unless they need to. So, so we're not, we're not seeing a lot of transactions happen writ large, let alone on Mm -hmm. our balance sheet. We are looking at stuff, but, but again, that spread persists today. Mm-hmm. And also back to the difference between open end and closed end funds. Closed end funds might have to have the pressure to transact mm-hmm. both to buy and to sell. And you could be more patient if you have a year or two without meaningful transaction volume. Everyone's kind of okay. That's less pressure. That has been how it has been throughout our relationship, where we have purchased a handful of assets in a given year, mm-hmm. and then there have been years when we've bought more significantly, and there's years when you know what, there's just nothing to buy, and it doesn't make sense, right? Two thousand and five was a year where we just decided to sell everything right. because we couldn't buy at, at an accretive price. So we don't have that pressure, which again I think really does give us flexibility to to be more rational and dispassionate in in how we exercise capital allocations. Uh And then you bought big in 22 with Donahue Schreiber. So talk about that, how that deal happened and what that then meant to your company because it expanded significantly. Yeah, it, it, um, it basically doubled the size of First Washington in terms of our employee base. But the, the strategy was CalPERS was underallocated at that point in time into re- real estate and was looking to, to make some more significant deployments. We had looked at a whole series of portfolios, both public and private. Uh, and there were a number of publics who wanted to be private. Uh, the, the the fundamental problem is markets were pricing these portfolios as homogenous A plus type uh, portfolios, when in fact, obviously, they weren't all A plus assets. Mm-hmm. And when you take the differential between what you would have to buy that at and then what you would sell the ones that you don't want, heap that back onto the ones you want to keep and look at the effective cap rate. It was just, it was impossible to make that math pencil. Mm -hmm. And especially for the publics where they need a premium to market in order to get the board to sign off and, and, and be able to transact. So, so while we had looked at many of these, it it wasn't practical from a, from a, a a standpoint of, of making the economics work Mm -hmm. in 2021, uh, the DSRG portfolio came back onto the marketplace. It had been on uh, a year or two earlier and, and just didn't transact. And we knew that we were one of a handful of, of potential buyers who could make that purchase. We had looked at it before. It was a concentrated West Coast portfolio, very high quality, number of those assets we had bid on and lost. So we, we knew it well, and it was a much higher quality portfolio in uh, high quality barrier to entry marketplaces. So we, we had a higher conviction on this portfolio than many others. And we took a very, what I would say, how we invest is we are very diligent. So many of the competitors took, if you will, a top-down approach to valuing when, in fact, we took a bottoms-up approach. Mm -hmm. So there were almost 50 assets in the portfolio. We made almost 5,000 lease calls. We visited 200 sites and really built up, you know, lease by lease our, our model. 
uh, and that diligence gave us comfort uh, in, around the conviction of what we could uh, pay for that. And in the, in the end, we were successful. Mm-hmm. And how did that change your company? You didn't, did you, you had some in the West Coast, yeah. but now having the barbell of East and West, what does that mean? And how's it changed your company? Sure. So it, it definitely shifted. We had uh, a heavier East Coast weighting and, and we now have a heavier West Coast weighting from an asset standpoint. Mm-hmm. And really we, um, while we did have a West Coast presence and a few people who worked out of the West Coast, we now have almost, you know, 40-ish percent here in Bethesda, almost 40-ish percent of our employee base in, uh, in Costa Mesa. Um, so it really shifted, you know, our overall presence, not only from a physical asset, but also from a, a personnel standpoint. And we have offices now up and down the West Coast, whereas we had had a San Diego office um, prior to the acquisition. Uh-huh. And with that size and scale, what does that mean to grow into that? What's that mean for culture, managing sure. the company? Not everyone's ready to double in scale and also go national from not national in terms of what where the headquarters might be and sure. headcount is? It, it definitely, you know, it is a challenge, right? And, and it's a personnel, it's a systems and operations challenge. You know, you're putting two existing businesses together. Uh-huh. They had different cultures. We had different systems. We had different processes. So you almost have to break it down to build it back up. And certainly... That's a, a messy, time-consuming process that takes a lot of communication, right? Uh-huh. A lot of communication, a lot of hand-holding, a lot of discussion to, to kind of get back to where everything is now, you know, integrated and fully functioning. So in particular, culture, right? Uh-huh. Culture eats strategy for, for breakfast. Uh, it is really important, and we spend a lot of time on you know, a unified culture with, you know, what's our mission statement, what are our core values, what are the behavioral anchors that support those core values. You know, we're out into the marketplace communicating that with our, our folks. And it, it takes a long time for that to fully seep in and everybody to understand it, you know, in a ubiquitous way. So I think that's a, a multi-year effort. Mm-hmm. I think we're well on the way. But, you know, we've got more work to do before everybody fully understands and internalizes that culture. Uh huh. So we talk a lot about culture in our business at CRG. Uh, our last podcast was with uh, mm-hmm. head of Walking the Talk, which is a CRG company that yeah. consults on culture and companies. And usually for me, the conversation with about culture is what's real. And when you talk about behavioral anchors, how does that really show itself and how does that show itself to people from the conquered company on the other side of the country? How do they get it? How do they welcome it? And how do you make that happen? Sure. So we went through a process of first and foremost, restating our mission statement and our core values after the acquisition. Right. Uh So we involved all of our, our various departments, new people, old people, it was very much, let's, let's reevaluate everything, right? What is the best, for example, and just a simple process. Well, you did it this way, we did it this way. Maybe one of those two is, is better than the other. Maybe there's a third way that's the better, but we, we sort of opened up those conversations. And then ultimately, with participation from a number of the folks who came over from that acquisition, they had a voice 
in the ultimate development of our mission statement and our core values. And I'd argue that they were similar to where we were before and probably similar to where DSRGs were, but they were a synthesis that everybody had a chance to participate in. And having a voice in that development is really important for buy-in, right? Mm -hmm. So so that was a process that, that we went through over the last year and a half, and it, it's really, it's, it's critical. Mm -hmm. And how much... How much, what was a surprise out of that process for you that wasn't happening here then might have come from Donahue Schreiber? Was there anything that were like ahas and this is better, not process wise, but again, this elusive culture wise? Yeah, on the culture standpoint, I don't think there were too many surprises overall on where we ended up. Uh -huh. And I don't think there were too many surprises between the two. There were some different structures that sort of created different focus between the two uh -huh. companies. And, you know, in, in the DSRG company, for example, the investors owned the operator. Right. Whereas here, we're separately owned. We're, we are a private entity. So we had a lot more flexibility. Uh -huh. So that was perhaps one of the bigger differences between the two. But fundamentally, I don't think there were any surprises that came out of that work, uh -huh. but, but more of a synthesis of, of where we thought a lot of that was going to end up. Yeah. And you co-lead the company. I don't know if that's the right word with Alex. Uh -huh. He's the CEO. You're the president. Yep. What does that partnership mean mm -hmm. and then also through this doubling in size how did each of you have to change both how you work together but how you face the business sure so uh alex and i were both brought in uh for a long-term secession plan from the prior owners uh, uh -huh. and um so we've we operate the company today. We're the primary two responsible for operations uh, as well as economic ownership. So we have sort of a co-ownership and, and responsibility. Mm -hmm. So all major decisions are, you know, are, are really between the two of us. Mm -hmm. But we do divide and conquer, if you will, certain responsibilities within the portfolio on a day-to-day -day basis. Alex is more focused on the operational side. I'm more focused on the finance, uh, capital markets activity, and some of, uh, you know, our technology, et cetera. I'd argue both of us had to elevate from a, a much more tactical level on a day-to-day -day basis to a much more strategic level uh, in order to operate you at know, this scale. At this scale, correct. Uh, and what it has required us to do is to really build that bench strength inside the organization because we're no longer as involved on the day-to-day -day basis, we need others who are who are sort of executing at that level. So it's really required us to, to sort of shift our focus mm -hmm. and, and elevate our game uh, in order to be effective. And when you're smaller, the bench, you can reach deep down into everybody's piece of the bench every minute successfully. Yep. And I'm guessing when you get bigger, that bench better be strong to stand on their own. They do. And, and that's the importance is that you provide the training, you provide the, you know, educational opportunities to make, and then in the hiring decisions, obviously when you're hiring new, that you have uh, folks who can stand on their own, who do have the ability to execute. And I still make it a point to walk around and talk to everybody when, whenever I'm in an office, I still want to have that day-to-day -day knowledge of every employee as a person, even if I'm not working with them in the same way that I used to. 
So that's really important to me, um, sort of as a leader, to make sure that they know who I am, I know who they are, mm-hmm. they know that they can pick up the phone and call anytime. Right. I keep an open door. I, I wish more people would come in and, and have a conversation. <laughs> it's really hard for folks to, to get up the gumption and walk into the president's office and just have a conversation. But it's always open, and, and I, I make a proactive point of reaching out to folks. So open door policy, I've heard this word for 40, 50 years. Not to tease you, but no, but please. I have. But what does that word mean in a national organization sure. with dispersed workforce, many of whom work from home? Yep. No one comes here to Bethesda, or um, some people are here. But how does that show itself? Because that's a symbolic yeah. word, not a real word. You are 100% correct. And, and certainly in the post-COVID hybrid work world, it is even uh, more so just sort of a symbolic word, which is why I spend a lot of time on the road. I make sure that I'm out in all of our offices and I actually proactively walk around and just say hello to everybody, ask them, how, how's it going? What's happening? Do you have any roadblocks? How's the family? It really is incumbent on me as a leader more so now to right. reach out in order to have those conversations to make that connection because to your point, they can't just walk down from the water cooler and say hello today. Right. In many days, that's not even a practical option. We do have teams, but who's going to just randomly teams, you know, the president and just say, hey, how are you doing today? So so it, it puts more onus on me as a leader right. to make those, those connections uh, so that folks do feel they have a relationship and they can reach out if they have questions over teams at a later point. And let me press this one more time in a slightly different way. Please. How, when you do walk around, mm-hmm. go to an office... How do you force a real answer? Because they're scared of you. You're the big shot. They laugh at your jokes. We've heard all these comments all the time. But how do you then get real stuff with real people who will get to the issues with you? So it's definitely a roadblock. It's a barrier. And, And I guarantee on the first, second, and third conversations, I'm getting a lot of what you talk about. Yeah. But you have to have consistent, continued conversations so that you break down that barrier with people. So they really do get to know you. And obviously walking around once or twice, you know, is it just a platitude and, and, you know, sort of like a politician running through the crowd. But when you do it again and again and again, and you remember to say, hey, how was your kid's football game? Right. Right. How did they do? What's, you know, going on in your life? Where are you going for Thanksgiving? Right. Right eventually people come to realize that you do care that you're trying to form a real relationship. And every once in a while, they'll actually open up a bit and and tell you what's really going on. Because of course, things are always going on that you're not aware of until somebody brings it to your attention. It's funny. And I keep picking on this with you. So it's fun to think of it. I'm bad at the kids football game question. It just doesn't work for me. And I have a bad memory for this. Uh But I do remember that the last time I was at a property, that dumpster over there was leaking. (laughs) And it shouldn't leak now. Sure. And if, but I think it takes a very, this is the walk the talk thing. It takes a sincere, engaged executive Mm -hmm. to remember that stuff and go make, don't accept this shy answer. Yeah drill down two levels to the real answer and they'll be blown away by that. Yeah. That's hard to do. Oh, it's, it's hard. And it, it certainly for some people can be uncomfortable, right? Cause you're pushing them out of their comfort zone, but it's important, right? I'll, I'll tell you a story from a prior life because I think it's really useful. Mm-hmm. So, um, we had over a thousand employees at Fresh Direct uh-huh. and it was a very large, complex environment. And 
you're always trying to improve your operations, right? You, you best laid plans, you think things are going to work one way, and of course they work differently, but you always have to adapt, right? Fix and adapt, fix and adapt. And what I found is most of the ideas that really had, you know, material movement in improvement, mm-hmm. it wasn't me sitting in the ivory tower thinking about how this might be better, but it was literally walking the line and talking to the person who was in the deli who was cutting the meat, right? And having them explain, hey, where are your friction points? Hey, right. what can we do differently? And, and when you ask them, they've thought about it because they live that experience. So most of the ideas really do come from the front line. And to your point, you got to get them to break down to be able to feel comfortable enough asking you. But that's where I find most good ideas come from is the person on the front line who has that lived experience, who's dealt with that frustration right. and thought about how right. to get rid of it. So it's, it's getting those ideas out of those frontline people that's really critical and important. Yeah. And it's, you're actually being curious because what you get to do as a CEO is you get to assimilate lots of disparate information and make sense of it mm-hmm. and remember all those data points to find a direction. Yep. That's a skill set up at the top, but a lot of people won't drill down and ask questions because they think their worldview is just fine. One of the things I think that we uh, here at First Washington have as a hallmark is we encourage humbleness, right? right? We, we want to get a lot of data. We want to hear from a lot of people because in the end, you don't know everything. You only know what you know. And by the way, that's a small percentage of the total to know, right? right. So one of the things that I think about is when, when you think about a, a circle, there's 360 degrees, right? I'm looking at what's inside that circle from my one degree. Mm-hmm. There's 359 others that I don't see what's inside that circle from. And boy, if I want to make a smart decision, I better start to see from some of those other perspectives to really hone in on what's there and you'll make a better decision that way. Yeah. So let's totally change subject. We may come back to your business if we have time at the end of the <laughs> sure. conversation, but I want to talk about you and how you got here because you kind of referred to Fresh Direct a little bit. Yeah, sure. So let's just talk about your history. You're not from the D.C. area. Yeah, so I'm uh, originally from Arlington Heights, which is a northwest suburb of Chicago. Yeah. So I grew up in the in the suburbs. I, I went to the University of Illinois, Big Ten guy. Uh, and then I moved to New York City to work uh, in investment banking at Solomon Brothers when I first left school. So I started in the mergers and acquisitions group. And that was uh, a forming experience. I bet it was at that, well, that was probably the last point of time of Solomon Brothers. And Correct. before it died, it was the most intense, it was the poster child for the big short or whatever it was. <laughs> yeah. We, uh, the bond floor was was legendary. Uh, there were books written about it, et cetera. You know, the, the thing that I wanted to get out of that experience is I wanted to develop a skill set, right? Something that was transferable throughout my career, Uh which is why I ended up in mergers and acquisitions, because I thought the skill of valuation would be really helpful and important, and it's transferable across all different industries. In fact, it would, you know, that skill, we would be brought in to every single industry for mergers and acquisitions work. So that valuation skill is important. Uh And it was a chance to get basically six years worth of, of exposure in two years. Mm-hmm. Not a lot of sleep, but you know, a lot of exposure <laughs> and senior exposure, right? I, I would be talking to C-level uh, individuals as a 22-year-old kid, right? So right. so it was a very good uh, experience. And, and I'll share a story. Sure. Uh, 
I, I was on the third day of not leaving the office and it was about five in the morning. Um, and I was working on a particular deal. And the head of the M&A group, Michael Carr, mm-hmm. and, and the most senior vice president marched out of his office and started coming down the hall. And I was first shocked that they were even there at five in the morning. And so as they're walking by, not even turning their head toward me, I hear, Rita, follow me. So I jump up and I start walking with Michael Carr. And he says, I need you to call so-and-so. It was a partner. He said, he's on the West Coast. Here's his cell phone number. And as he's getting into the elevator, he tells me the message he wants me to deliver. And as the doors are closing, he says, and don't F it up. <laughs> and, <laughs> so my heart sinks at that moment. It's like I've been Im- imbued with this huge responsibility from somebody that I didn't even think knew my name. Mm-hmm. And of course, I got to call a partner at two in the morning his time and wake him up. So I'm, I'm a little scared to do this. But nonetheless, that's... That's what I've been asked to do. I call him, I wake him up, I deliver the message. And later that morning, they announced the largest M&A transaction that had happened uh, within the aerospace industry in the history, right? So, so it was a big deal. Right. But, you know, w- w- what it taught me was a couple things. One is that even the most junior person has a role to play in a large complex transaction. And admittedly, it was a small one, but it was important for the closing because if he didn't get that message and do what he needed to do, that deal wasn't going to happen. And two, even when you're sort of low on the ranks, I was shocked to learn that the head of the department knew who I was, even though I had never talked to him before. Wow. So it's really, you know, you think that you're sort of a small cog in the larger apparatus, but but you really, you know, you have a role to play and people do know who you are. It, it's that. The other story I've heard, same exact thing, and this is a Blackstone story, but people like who are associates, mm-hmm. they represent John Gray. Yeah. And when they make a phone call, if the person on the other end of the line doesn't take them seriously, the whole company will get angry at that person <laughs> Because you were the representative of the legend on Wall yeah. Street. He had to delegate because he can't do everything. Same with John Gray. Yep. But that analyst at Blackstone has the authority of John Gray behind him, as did you. Yeah, and it's it's funny because at the time, you don't think you have a <laughs> you lot of authority, that. right? But, but it's a great lesson in leadership. You have to delegate. And uh, to your point, the person on the other, other end of the line did take me seriously, which... Thankfully for me, I didn't get yelled at for waking him up. Doesn't it like give you an inoculation of self-confidence that like last a couple few years till your next inoculation? I did feel much better about being there uh, post that. So you're right. And, and, and what a great thing for Michael to have done for me. Admittedly, I was, I was just there at the right time, but certainly it's a boost of confidence and, uh, and, and boy, did I feel great about that. That's great. Okay. Then we're going to move quickly through this because I want to get to real estate, but what was next? And then how did you get here? Yeah. So I got hired away from Solomon brothers toward the end of my two year stint into a private equity firm, crown capital group. Peter Ackerman was the primary principal behind, uh, the organization. And he flew up to New York the day I was hired and he told me, He's like, look, Dan, you're going to do all these wonderful deals. You're going to have hockey sticks with these projections, and it's going to look great. And, and what I care about and what I want you to focus on is the risk. How do these not become a hockey stick? Where does it break down? And, and really understand that risk and, and figure out how you mitigate that risk. Mm-hmm. Because whatever you think is going to drive the sales won't. It'll be something serendipitous, but you got to be in the game in order to participate in that. And so he taught me the important lesson of risk mitigation and, and thinking about the downside. Through that, we formed Fresh mm-hmm. Direct, which is an online grocer. 
And so that company, literally, we wanted to buy a brick and mortar store and back them and then grow that because we thought food, uh, grocery dis- uh, distribution into Manhattan was broken, which mm-hmm. it was. We tried to back one of the principals. The other principal ended up buying him out. So we asked Joe to come into our office and we just reimagined how food delivery into Manhattan could, could happen. Hundreds of iterations later, we ended up with Fresh Direct, um, which again was an online grocer. And that's the business that I referred to earlier where we right. had over a thousand employees. Um, by the time I left it, it had grown to about $700 million in, uh, in revenue and uh, actually was profitable. And uh, I will admit to being an early investor in Webvan. <laughs> Investors might be the wrong word. We rolled the dice on it. And it was a mistake. But was that your first exposure to the retail business? And that'll come back home to roost here. Yeah, that uh, in any material way, that was the first retail. There were other sort of deals along mm-hmm. the way, but but those weren't uh, any real material exposure. This was the first true material exposure to retail and in particular grocery. Yeah. Then how did you shift into real estate and the JER companies? And the last podcast a week ago was with Debbie Harmon, Love who Deb. you worked with. She's about six blocks away. Yep. So that's pretty cool. Um, but talk about your experience there. Sure. So I was one of the few people within Fresh Direct who knew the business soup to nuts. I had written the business plan a hundred times, did all the modeling. Mm-hmm. I knew how it worked. So when we were doing our third round of investment fundraising, I was the guy who gave the tour to everybody who came through. So at midnight, we'd drop mm-hmm. the orders and, and I'd walk people through and show how it worked. Um, a gentleman named Ed Mathias of Carlisle mm-hmm. was one of Peter's friends who came through and I gave a tour to him. So when I eventually moved down here to, to Washington, D.C. and decided to, all right, well, what am I going to do now? I, I gave Ed a call and he's the one who introduced me to Joseph E. Robert Jr. And uh-huh. that's how I got to, to JER. They were looking for a chief of staff. I went to Joe's house one Saturday. Uh, you know, I must have been five minutes from leaving his house and I got the call and they're like, when can you start? Wow. So, so two questions. What, what year was that? What part of the history of JER was it? Were they still an asset manager or were they already an investor? And then the second question is what the heck is a chief of staff? I've met a lot of them and it's an interesting career move that I'm curious about. Sure. This, they were an investor at this point. This was 2007. So they had been a well-established investor, had multiple funds, uh, had the public REIT, uh, and were growing with additional funds and additional geographies that they had invested in heretofore. A chief of staff is a very interesting title. It's a truly Washingtonian title that yes. almost no one understands, sometimes including the chief of staff, because it's basically a catch-all for, you know, I basically managed Joe Inc., which meant... Mm-hmm. Things inside the business, things outside the business. He had a lot of extracurricular activities um, from from various business councils to various relationships, uh, uh, nonprofit philanthropic activities. Uh, and so my job was to manage what I called Joe Inc. He had several mm. houses, he had a plane and and staff, and you know, so so it included basically everything that he did. And it, it, there was a whole staff of people that I worked with. He had two schedulers. He had somebody who was in charge of just maintaining the contacts. There were people who, who handled all sorts of things. So, but that eventually filtered to me and it was my job. I was Joe's single point of contact for a lot of this. And then I had to, to basically make sure that the rest of the apparatus executed against the broader vision. So I want to think about this from a career standpoint, because I'm a recruiter. I talk to people who are chiefs of staff. I want is you're not the president. No, 
You're not the executive assistant at the other end of the spectrum. You're not the chief operating officer. And so you do, you're his voice when he's not there. How does that prep you to then come here? Sure. And I don't know if you stepped into the president's role when you came here or what it was, but talk about that. So... You're 100% correct. I, I do not have a formal title, right? And, and, and therefore, you know, for many of these people, hey, they don't report to me, right? So, so it does involve, obviously, being politically savvy and making friends, right? Yeah. So I was Joe's voice. So as, as alluded to earlier, I was imbued with, you know, a certain amount of authority. But it's not uh, it's not a direct, right? So, yeah. so you really do need to make friends with everybody, make sure that it goes both ways, right? Yes, Joe wants you to do this. But by the way, what's happening, right? Part of my job was just to understand what's happening. Where were their friction points? How could I bring the broader, you know, sort of Joe Inc. to bear to maybe solve some of those friction points so that I'm not just viewed as somebody who's there to, to be a taskmaster, but I'm a partner to help them solve the broader aspects of whatever they're trying to do. Mm-hmm. So, so that's just a life skill, right? It's, it's, it's not about telling people what to do. It's about earning their trust and being their partner in executing a broader goal. And that I think, you know, serves you anywhere. And it fits what we talked about before as we talked about the growth of your role in president mm-hmm. is you have to be the real deal. You could do that job as a functionary and oftentimes it is, or it's a translator, but it, could also be a principal, and you behaved as a principal. I've always wanted to be on the principal side. Part of the reason, while I love my time at, at Solomon Brothers, it's very transactional. You don't see, was it a good deal, was it a bad deal? So you don't really have a vested interest, which is why I like to be on the principal side. That's why I'm on the principal side now. And I very much viewed myself as being on the principal side there where I'm really partnering with all of these people who are trying to make various things happen. So I'll I'll tell you how I got to here. Um, So uh, unfortunately, Joe uh, contracted uh, geoglastoma myalgia, which is a a terminal form of cancer. Mm -hmm. And so his personal attorney came to me a few months before he passed away and said, look, Dan, will you stay and help me unwind a lot of this? Cause you know, all the, the, the people and, and the assets, et cetera. So I, I agreed to do, I viewed that as my last duty for Joe. And so as I was getting toward the end of that process, I, uh, I told David, Hey, you know, I think I've done all I can really do here. You know, I'll always take your call, but it's time to move on. And, and right about that time was Joe's Fight for Children has an annual event, and I bumped into Bill Wolf, who had been a lifelong friend of Joe's, and they each they went into a deal together in 1981. It was a busted condo deal in Florida, mm-hmm. and they they did it together. They worked it out. They each got a nickel, and they kind of formed their own businesses and, and went off, but stayed friends. And so Bill's like, "What are you doing?" And I said, "Well, I'm getting ready to move." I said, "You gotta come in." So so I came in the next day to see Bill and, and a couple of the other partners, and behind Bill. There was uh, on the ground, there was this black shadow box, right? Mm-hmm. And it was, I said, oh, Bill, oh, you've got the shadow box, right? So Joe, if you sat and looked over him, over his left shoulder was a shadow box. It had uh-huh. three pieces of paper. Uh-huh. And that was when a loan was three pieces of paper. And it was stamped paid back when they like literally stamped those things paid, right? right. That was the loan from that deal. Mm-hmm. And Joe kept it on his wall as a memento to remember, I took a risk I repaid my my lender and right like so he was very proud of that. So I saw it and I was oh you got a copy of the loan and Bill goes no no Dan, 
when Joe passed away, I went to David and I said, David, this isn't going to mean anything to anybody in the world, but it would mean the world to me. Wow. And David's like, of course, you have to have it. So, so when I saw that, that was like the universe telling yeah, me of course I was. was supposed to be here. And I wasn't hired as the president. I was a, a much lower profile person. And I had to earn the trust of the people here before I was able to be elevated, right? And, and I'm sure Bill wanted to make sure that I would work out, et cetera. So, so I came in at a much uh, lower um, title, but I worked my way up. And in what title and what role and what function did you come in at? I think it was a senior asset manager. It was just sort of a generic you know, right. title. Functionally, I was working with Jim Blumenthal, who was the CFO and, and was Bill's partner. Uh, and the two of them, you know, they, they were hand in glove uh, working through deals. Yeah. The reason I ask this is you have training from Solomon Brothers. So mm -hmm. you have, a, I'm not pausing on this. You got something behind your back here, right? <laughs> so you have some skill, some big skill set, some big ambition. And then you were the chief of staff. Now you're a senior asset manager. It's actually the first time you're really doing real estate because chief mm -hmm. of staff is swooping down. Sure. But now you're starting from the ground floor to do something in real estate. Mm -hmm. And then what? how did that feel? How did the learning curve in the asset type happen? Mm -hmm. And then quickly get us to president and sure. then we're going to end the podcast. So... so I'm someone who likes to get my hands dirty. Right. I liked being at Fresh Direct at midnight when the orders dropped and walking the floor and seeing what was happening. It, it's just what gets me energized. So so working with the asset was, was a natural thing, even though I didn't fully understand it. One of the first assignments that Jim had me do was our annual appraisal cycle. Mm -hmm. Well, that's valuation. Right. I know valuation. Yeah. So I was able to leverage a skill set that I had you know, learned years earlier right. and leverage it into something that maybe I didn't quite know, but I knew more or less, right? So cap rates are the inverse of multiples. I'm used to working with multiples, same concept, it's just yeah. inverted. Right. So I, I was able to leverage some skills that I knew as a way of getting in. And of course the valuation, it's literally breaking down all the cash flows of the property. So now I'm looking at literally all of the leases and what's happening and what are the assumptions that are going into. So I'm literally deconstructing each of these investments and seeing it, how it's built from the lease all the way to an ultimate property, right? So that was a, it was a way to leverage a skill set I knew yeah. to, to learn the portfolio and how it worked in something that obviously I wasn't as familiar with. So it's really interesting. When I talk to people who are looking to make a career change, mm -hmm. one of the challenges is what you just described. Because people are a third of the way through their career. They've been, they started at Solomon Brothers, so sure. they're, they're hipper than now. And then the next thing is they become the chief of staff, this quirky role. Mm -hmm. But then you take a humble position and have to relearn a business. And people have trouble with that thing that happens. Mm -hmm. The listeners can't see my fingers <laughs> describing it, going down the cliff and back up the hill. Yep. But that's what you did. Yeah, so... I knew Bill was bringing me on with the intent to be long-term succession. Right. But the only way that that would work... Learn the business. ...is if I learn the business. So it was really important. But again, back to that, hey, why did I go to Solomon Brothers in the first place? Mm -hmm. I saw that that skill set of valuation is something that was transferable. And, and you know, through dumb luck or, or maybe a little bit of foresight, it really was something that was transferable and ultimately was very valuable for me to get in and start to learn the business. So 
I knew I wanted to be a principal. I knew I wanted to work for myself. I knew I wanted to have ownership in what I do. Mm-hmm. And this was an opportunity with a known, right? Bill's a, a wonderful man. I don't know if you have the chance to meet nope. him, but you know, love him to death. And, uh, and he's a great partner. And so it was a, you know, it was, it was a gift, right? Mm-hmm. To be able to do that. So I didn't view it as, as, as taking a step down. It was just another step forward in what I ultimately wanted to do. And boy, was I determined to learn the business. Yeah. Great lesson there. So let's then fast forward to something I already asked you, but I'll re-ask you. The question is talk about your partnership with Alex and how you came together to be functional and maybe wonderful partners. I don't know if you are, but we're great partners, but but think about what skill set it is to be partners, to run a business. Yeah. So, um, Alex came into the organization about a year and a half, almost two years after I did. Uh, and really, uh, I was working with Jim Blumenthal again on the financial side of the business. And, and Alex came in on the operating side of the business. You know, there were multiple partners within the organization when we came on and they had different functional skills. And so again, when they were looking for succession, it wasn't like one person was going to be able to do everything. <laughs> and so Alex and I have had years to form our relationship. And, you know, we, you know, we're partners in, in everything that we do. And I know when, when I'm making decisions, it's going to impact him just like it's going to impact me and vice versa. So we consult each other frequently to make sure that we're synced up, right? Mm-hmm. Like we need to be synced up on these things in order to, to move forward. So it's been a great partnership with Alex. Uh, and I hope he feels the same way. <laughs> it's been successful. And, and, you know, I think this most recent acquisition has allowed us to both grow and really kind of elevate our game right. and, and, and learn how to operate differently within our roles. But then obviously, how do we come back together and, and work together at sort of another level? And it's been fun to sort of explore that. And, and, and he's been a, a wonderful partner to do yeah. that with. It, it's interesting. I the the conversation with Debbie. One of the surprises in the conversation with Debbie Harmon mm-hmm. is when she described that every the two top levels of leadership have co CEOs mm-hmm. and co presidents, mm-hmm. and the co concept is very very constructive and resilient, making for the business. Mm-hmm. I think that's right. So what's what's interesting is we were co-presidents, and in the end, we just decided to, hey, split it. Right. The, the actual title didn't matter because functionally, we're both running the business. We have an equal ownership. We have an equal say. So it, it almost doesn't matter. But what's important is that we're synced up. Alex is incredibly intelligent. He's got a certain skill set within the business coming from a development background at Four City. Right. That's something unique that he brings to the table, you know, that that is is very, very valuable at the organization. I come from a capital market standpoint and, mm-hmm. and that experience, and I bring that to the, or, so we complement each other, not only in in, in sort of skill set, but also personality type, right? And, and Alex is able to make sure that when I'm kind of going off the rails, he can kind of ring me back in and vice versa, right? Yeah. Like we get excited and, and, and you know, sometimes you could take an idea a little too far and, and, you know, but it's great to have that partner to bounce it off of and to, to help give you that dose of reality or that other perspective that, oh, you know, I, I didn't think about that. But, but if you're, if you're lonely at the top, mm-hmm. it's very easy to make those mistakes because you don't have somebody to bounce an idea off of before going live and then finding out the hard way. Hmm, maybe that wasn't the right thing to do. So it really is beneficial, I think, from a from a, a management standpoint that we have each other to bounce these things I, off. I of. think it's the ideal structure, but it's rare, and it might be rare because finding two people 
whose ego enables a co Mm -hmm. and two people who are worthy of each other doesn't often happen. You know, Bill uh, and the team were very insightful. Uh, I think they made that decision with a certain amount of wisdom. Mm -hmm. And obviously, like any partnership, right? You know, Alex and I are always working on our partnership. Uh, And I've made my fair share of mistakes. (laughs) uh, And and he's helped to, you know, point those out and, and give me some advice and vice versa. Every once in a while, I'll see something and I'll point it out. But you know, it's, it's, it's like uh, any, any relationship, uh-huh. you have to invest in it. You have to work at it. And if you do, the outgrowth of that is, is better, right? And, and I think fundamentally we make better decisions as a, as a unit than if we were just operating independently. How much did you just refer when you said that to, you said we've each made our mistakes, were those mistakes in relationships or mis- mistakes in real estate? <laughs> no, no, mistakes in in uh, in real estate where I may view a particular investment through a lens, right? Yeah. And in left to my own devices, I would charge forward and do that, right? And he may say, "Hey, but what you're missing is this this market rent call right. isn't what you think it is, right?" And vice versa. And I'm using that as as a, as a hypothetical, but but the point is that we each come to this with our experiences, That's our great. knowledge, and our perspective. Right. But by no means is that the end all and be all. And, and in fact, it's, it's just one perspective, right? right? It's one point of information and you need multiple to be effective. And so I think we've learned to, to work together in a way to hopefully leverage and harness, you know, a better decision-making process. Uh-huh. Uh, I'm a touchy-feely guy sure. as a headhunter. So I'm curious how much of that is you work on how you communicate with each other because that takes either growing into it or it takes... It does take attention. Mm-hmm. It's like a marriage, right? Yeah. My marriage takes some attention. I don't know about yours. But, <laughs> uh, but And it's the blessing of it, but it's the time and attention put into it that also makes the function of the each what you bring to the table help. It does. I'd, I'd argue Alex is, is the more feely of the two of us and, <laughs> uh-huh. and bless him for being that. Um, and it is about communication. And, and in particular, it's about the tough communication, right? Yeah. Uh, and I'm so grateful when Alex points out like, Hey, I think you're making a mistake, right? I think you've missed this, right? That's not easy to tell somebody, but it's so critically important. And, and of course it's, it's incumbent on me to be humble enough to receive that and yeah, yeah. for what it is and vice versa. It's a yeah. great experience, but it's, it's, it's working on the relationship at multiple levels that builds that trust, right? Mm-hmm. I, we, <laughs> we have what we call the Jim Blumenthal rule. So unfortunately, our our partner, Jim Blumenthal, passed away at an early age uh, from cancer. And he and I each have the rule that if I die, he's going to look after Anya and my investment and and think of it as his own to make sure that that she's taken care of and vice versa. So we call it the Jim Blumenthal rule. And, you know. It, it, it's really something that, that kind of sticks with us. And I think it goes to the level of trust that I have in, in Alex and that I think he has in me. Fair deal. It, and it's so many lessons there from the golden rule and do the right thing in long-term view with partners. So yeah. it's great. We're dropping this podcast the week before Christmas. And this is a retail discussion. So how will the retail season, <laughs> if you have any projections on this, but how's this going to look from an American perspective of what we care about in the economy? Sure. So best intelligence suggests that retail sales will be up. I think you've got some sectors of the consumer that are strained, uh, especially on the lower socioeconomic uh, spectrum. Those dollars are a bit more constrained. They're a bit more liberal the higher up you go. 
I think on an aggregate basis, unit volume is probably flat to down, but sales volume is up because of inflation. Mm -hmm. Um, and so depending on how the retailers have positioned with the street, that could be a happy message, but, um, net net at its face, it'll be a positive, uh, percentage growth. Cool. Well, I hope inflation feels better in the economy and the voting population over the (laughs) next year. So people feel good about their country. Of course. It's important. Nothing more important. Last question on leading voices is always your advice for a young person getting into the real estate business. So I would say to be curious and that manifests itself in a couple ways. First off, you know, be engaged, ask questions. Don't be afraid to say, I don't understand that and ask people to explain things to you because it can be very complicated, especially when you first step in. But that's how you get to know the business. The second way is be proactive. When there are special projects, sign up for them. Yeah, it's going to, you know, you're going to have to commit a couple more hours a week, but you know what? The benefits of that will be so much greater because you'll have worked with people that you didn't get to work with. You'll have learned things that you didn't know and you'll get exposure that when managers are looking to, to elevate people, you'll be somebody who they recognize. Mm -hmm. And the third way that it manifests itself is be open to taking positions in different segments. So if you're working in property management, be open to asset management, right? If you're working in asset management, be open to, to leasing, but, but get exposure across sort of the, the plethora of, of verticals Mm -hmm. because somebody who understands how the business operates in totality is much more valuable than somebody who just knows one component of it. Mm, Totally true. It's interesting. First of all, curiosity has come up maybe half a dozen times in our conversation so far. Uh So you're walking the talk in terms of that advice and also the understanding across the business. I think the word context, it's like, I can't do what I do without context. Mm -hmm. And so many people like ready, aim, fire without context because they know what the target is, but they have no idea what the woods look like in front of the target. So I joke all the time, let's ready, aim, fire instead of ready, fire, aim. And you're so, you're so right. If you understand the why, if you understand that context, you'll make a better decision, right? You you actually will hit your target because you know what you're doing instead of just shooting into the dark. The other thing that that does is it prepares you for the next target. Because if you shoot the target and know the target, (laughs) but don't have the context, then the next target that comes up, you got to reinvent your wheel instead of keep learning from that. Yep. Yeah, you're so right. Everything builds off of itself, right? As they say in pool, it's not the shot, it's the leave. So Mm -hmm. you're thinking ahead and that that helps. Totally true. Daniel, thank you so much for this discussion. It was just wonderful. Love talking to you. Matt, thank you. It was an honor and uh, so grateful to have been here. So appreciate it. Cool. I hope that you enjoyed today's episode. Please remember, if you're enjoying Leading Voices, to share an episode with a friend or get them to subscribe. If they're podcast wary and not sure how to find and subscribe on their phone, go ahead and take their phone in your hand and subscribe for them. And add another few of your favorite podcasts to their list to get them started. They'll thank you for it. You can also find episodes of the show on our website, which you can find at zrgpartners.com slash leadingvoices. And if you have comments or discussion about this episode or leading voices in general, or if you're seeking help in real estate human capital solutions, recruiting or consulting especially, please contact me at mslepin at zrgpartners.com. Thanks for being a listener to Leading Voices.